As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rabona podcast. Once again, I'm Musa Konga with Ryan Hun. Michael De Silva is indisposed. Well, he's on his travels. He's traveling. A busy um, boy. Yeah, he's a busy boy. He's out there because Rabona obviously has a magazine as well. So he's out there putting so much in place for that. Very excited by what we've got coming next in the print edition. But for this week's podcast, we are discussing derbies galore, four derbies high and rising. We've got Arsenal, uh, Spurs in the North London derby. We've got Liverpool Everton. Chelsea, Fulham, and Lazio Roma. But first of all, let's get into North London derby. Right? Yes. Oh my God, what a game. What a game. What a game. Well, from a technical point of view, not the best, but insane intensity. As we'll discuss with James later when we're talking about Serie A, bit of a theme of the weekend with some very questionable refereeing decisions. Yeah, sorry, I meant to say we're being joined by James Horncastle later, aren't we? To discuss. We are. Yeah, yeah. We are. To discuss the Rome derby. That's right. And uh, yeah, in Napoli-Juve, there were some very questionable refereeing decisions for both sides. And that seemed to be the theme of oh, the North could... London derby, really. Right. I'm not going to go Bill Simmons and go conspiracy rye here. Because <laughs> it, Why was, not? it was very balanced in terms of ropiness for both teams, I think. What um, were the key features that are the game for you in terms of the play? Just It was just ferocious, I think, in terms of how intense it was. And like I said, I mean, the first half, it really didn't feel like anything was going through midfield that much. Everything was long. I think Arsenal's pass completion was in the 60s um, in terms of percentage. Yeah. Spurs had a lot more of the ball. Interesting tactical tweak from, from Emery. I think um, he left out Torreira, which I think was a bit of a surprise from the start. Continue to show faith in Guendouzi, who, to be fair, I think he's having a very, very good season. I mean, there's still progress to be made, but he was all right. He got taken off at half-time for Torreira, but Mustafi was moved to right back and Mustafi going to Mustafi at some point, I think. And he was obviously at fault for the, he gave away the penalty, which I think it, it was offside beforehand, but it was such a 
small margin you can kind of without VAR you can understand I mean it was his shoulder was offside or whatever with the penalty in the last minute that Arsenal well that was saved by Lloris which again probably should have been retaken because uh, Vertonghen was about five yards in the box before Aubameyang had hit it but I don't think it was a penalty anyway so it was just this weird like every just not every decision a lot of decisions were pretty poor I didn't think Torreira's sending off was a sending off either actually thought maybe a yellow but um, Arsenal were definitely be the the most disappointed I think out of the two because they played really well it was a really good away performance for Arsenal which is something that um, has not been too regular this season in, in big Rams games as well. lovely goal really lovely goal and I loved his celebration actually and he was kind of like this is my house you well, know, I also love about Ram- yeah because of he's done so he's well done so much at Wembley. Yeah, I think what's interesting about uh, Rams as well is you know he'll be the second Welshman to go and rescue Cristiano Ronaldo, um, <laughs> following the footsteps of Gareth. Oh my God! <laughs> Sorry, why? What did I say? Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to bleep that out. <laughs> Explicit content. <laughs> it was just such a classy sign-off. You know, he's heading off obviously to Juventus this summer and to really score a goal like that. A beautiful finish goes through and strolls around. A world-class shot stopper. It was pretty cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I like to. After Ian Wright would have been proud of that. Yeah, definitely. After yeah. the game, he uh, he posted a thing saying how much he's going to miss those games. That got me a little bit. Can I say this as well? People don't really go round the keeper so much anymore. They out sprint them or whatever. But actually going round the keeper, you know, I don't mean like knocking it past them. I mean actually orbiting them. Yeah. You know, he orbited him. He showed him the shoulders, and it was like old school. It was like actually original you know, Brazilian Ronaldo phenomenon. Oh, wow. Where he enjoyed the one-on-one. Like, there's very few finishers who enjoy the one-on-one. High praise. Well, listen. I mean, the, the thing is, there's a, there was, you know, he started the run inside his own half. I think it was Mkhitaryan, let him go. And, um, you know, that's a long way to travel, thinking about what you're going to do. And you see it a lot, actually. I was having a conversation with my mate Rob, shouts to Rob, he's a Southampton fan. We were talking about Nathan Redmond on the phone before the Man United-Southampton mm. game. We were saying how... Haven't we heard from Rob before? Probably, yeah. We did a bit, yeah, we did a segment. Oh, all right, Rob, how's yeah. it going? Anyway, sorry, yeah. carry on. There you go, Rob. There's your shout-out. There you go, there you go. <laughs> but um, how players like Redmond and, and say, say Walcott, for example, their biggest enemy is almost having time in order to, to think, kind right, of think of course, about it because yeah. they're, they're so good instinctively a lot of the time, whereas it's actually quite a difficult skill. I've got equally high praise. Do you know what it is? 2000 Champions League final, Real Madrid Valencia, when Raul gets the ball and goes through on goal. Similar dimensions like similar run and just goes around Canizares and it looks like it's like watching Fred Astaire they should put that in sepia oh. they should put it in like you know these old like old school like Pathé News style because it's so classical the way he goes around it and puts it into the I think he puts it in behind the, the defender slides ahead of the ball and it ends up in the far corner I'm like that is some classic it, it, it's so rare that you see a finisher like Ramsey mm. turn the game into the training ground and that's what he did, I think, at the weekend. He, he had this incredibly high-pressure game, this high-pressure finish, and he turned it into a training ground. Are you suggesting Aaron Ramsey might be a moonlighter? I think he's a moonlighter. Use him uh, as a false... A little a plug for a, a piece of moonlighter <laughs> on the of, yeah. site. <laughs> um, yeah, but sorry, yeah. further ahead with the game. No, good. I mean, I think for Spurs, it was essential not to lose. You know, there were 10 points ahead of Arsenal. If Arsenal had won on the weekend, it would have been cut to one. And I think just stopping the rot as it were, you know, I think three defeats in a week for Spurs would have been a very problematic scenario to being at this stage of the season. And um, probably the the weekend's fixtures and the results probably say it worked out best for Man United out of everyone. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to work on United because obviously we've got, um, we did quite a big seven on the last week. But I think it's just, 
there's nine games to go, right? That's mm. a lot of the season. So there's a lot of talk about, is this a defining result for... Uh, no, it's not. There are nine games to go. Yeah, and, and it's Arsenal Man United next weekend at right. the Emirates, which Everyone's I think is going to be a massive game. I think if Arsenal win that, that's Arsenal's games against the top six done completely. I think if Arsenal beat Manchester United next week, I think that puts them in a really strong position to come top all, four. It's all entirely possible. Looking at the closing games, even for Manchester City, they've got Crystal Palace, they've got Brighton. Yeah. Brighton is still fighting to stay up. So, And Brighton are brutal to play at any time. I think this is actually a way to Brighton. So there's, there's so much to go on. So, yeah. 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 I want to give a little bit of a shout out to Socrates, who Jonathan Lou wrote a really good piece for The Independent on Socrates. Go and check it out. He is, I think, going under the radar in terms of how good a signing he was, I think, this season. I wanted to share a little bit of love for him because he is a defender in a mould that Arsenal haven't had for quite a long time in terms of that he really, really seems to love defending more than anything else. And, you know, I might paraphrase what a little bit of what Jonathan wrote because, to be honest, it shared a lot of my thoughts about him. He was brilliant on the weekend and he got man of the match, I think deservedly so. Managed Kane, who is, you know, a a really intimidating physical presence as a striker. Very big dude. Very and, strong. And mobile with it as well. Yeah, and, you know, not not scared to get his elbows in. England's golden boy ooh, has a ooh, has a has a streak. Sorry, sorry, do I, did I hear do I hear the faintest sound of shots being fired there? I'm just waiting for Michael to give me a call. Tell me. <laughs> um but no, obviously we we're fans of Harry Kane on yeah, this podcast. But um, you know, I do think he maybe gets a little bit more leeway for some of the nastiness. A brace of physical Is that play. a fair way to I don't, it's not a problem. Look, every 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 Strike has a dark side. Dennis yeah. Bergkamp was like, oh that. yeah, Dennis Bergkamp, Bergkamp was notorious. Yeah, oh my god, you know he had yeah. the 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 softest touch and the sharpest elbows in the Premier League. There for we a go, long right? Time. Absolutely, it's just um, how it is, right? But I think it's been really easy for Kane to bully Arsenal defenders over the last few years, mm. centre back specifically. And I think Socrates is a perfect example of how you can defend against him. And yeah, sometimes maybe it goes a little bit too far. You know, the Ashley Barnes headlock comes to mind when Arsenal played Burnley. But again, it's a Ashley Barnes is a very physical kind of striker Socrates as well. Socrates had a hard time against Liverpool, didn't he, in the 5-1? Uh, he did. I don't think he was alone. And I think he's not been fully fit. He's had fitness issues all season. And right. actually now I think he's getting to full fitness and you're seeing it. Um, there was a really amazing quote in Jonathan's piece from Klopp, which I wanted to mention. So there's basically a little bit of, you know, some love from Thomas Tuchel. And there was one from Klopp said, you're never quite sure if he's about to kill you. <laughs> Which actually <laughs> Which is, is so a perfect. very useful quality. I mean, that's actually what Patrick Vieira said about Vinnie Jones. He said, when you're on the pitch with Jones, one never felt that one was fully safe. <laughs> and there, you know, there's an element of, you need a bit of steel in the soul. All the great sides have had it. Yeah. And, you know, Arsenal need... Got to got try and steel. win the game in the tunnel, you know, got before you get out there. Well, I'm going to throw something in right now, actually, on Spurs. We normally wait for questions at the end of the podcast, but this just seems so nailed on right now. Yeah, do it. David Namdi said, missing out on the top four would affect Spurs more than any top six side, yet corners continue to be cut in terms of player recruitment. Despite witnessing one of the greatest Spurs sides ever, we have nothing to remember them for. Discuss. Now, I'm going to be very quick on this because I, I know you're on talking about Arsenal. But no, I no, no, I, don't, I, I actually don't. The reason I'm throwing this in very quickly is because Arsenal have an identity and a direction, right? But the problem I have with Spurs at the moment, Pochettino, which may count against me in the end, is I don't think he understands fully the value of myth building for Spurs. And I say that is the way he rules out 
winning trophies, the way he doesn't concentrate on them and the way he focuses on the league, knowing that in the league he won't get the resources he needs to strengthen, to, to David's point, knowing that it's unlikely he'll be a champion, but not having any trophies to show for it and consciously ruling them out and publicly ruling out trophies. To me, that's a big problem because even a Europa League, right? Even an F- I don't mean even, I mean they're big trophies, but a Europa League, an FA Cup, they are steps on the pathway to greatness. And Emery gets that, right? Arsenal get that. You, you wouldn't catch Emery basically whiffing a tournament publicly because he was at Sevilla, he won the Europa League, he sees the value. Yeah. And you see with Emery there is a trajectory. I look at Spurs and I'm like, I don't see the trajectory. I agree with you a little bit. I kind of disagree in some aspects, which is I think that I think that in terms of um, priorities and tangible goals, then yeah, there's a trajectory trajectory. Sorry for Emery. Mm. Because he's, you know that he's probably been hired for his strengths as a Europa League manager and also more on his experiences at Valencia and Sevilla than PSG. Mm. However, Arsenal have looked very hard to or Arsenal have been very very hard to define this season in terms of how they play where they are potentially going there is no obvious trajectory for Arsenal I don't think at the moment they're as likely I think to come top four and come back into being a regular Champions League club as they are to finish sixth and struggle to get back in over the next few years I genuinely believe that for Spurs there's a clear trajectory there that there's been incremental improvement season by season under Pochettino they have the new stadium that they're ready to move into. That's a new direction for them. So I'm kind of on the fence a little bit. I, I, do you know what I mean? Mm. You're looking at me like... Uh, no, I just, um, I just I just, think like, I just wonder if this is going to, you know, there's no doubt, you know, we, no one on this podcast has anything but the greatest respect for Pochettino. He's incredible. And you could argue in terms of resources, and I have argued before, the only coach better than him on the planet right now is Diego Simeone in terms of what he does with his resources. I mean, part of me just hopes he'll go to Real Madrid and Stop it. be amazing. Well, why not? Why? Well, Michael's not here. It's not fair. It's like... Well, at some point, listen, Michael like can... Look, look, I don't speak Actually, I'm going I'm I'm to use Michael, a point that Michael raises quite a lot about Spurs is that I think he, he said the same thing about the importance of a trophy. Mm. And we spoke about it off air a lot of times. I don't think that managers are defined by the trophies they win as much today as they would have been in generations gone past. For example... If Spurs finish fourth every season and say Pochettino stays for 10 years and he has two League Cups to show for it, is that going to be, is that, does that mean that his tenure there has been more successful than if they have a couple more title pushes? Let me throw this in then. Managers, I'm, I'm just asking. I'm man, not, managers you know. are not defined by trophies, but clubs are and great clubs are and Spurs are a great club. And at a certain point, a great club has to win something. And, and, and I think a squad needs to win something to become great. Well, see, I, I agree there. Yeah. I agree. See, I, yeah. So I'm of the, the mindset that I, I believe that winning something like the FA Cup for Spurs yeah. would be huge. It gives players that taste of winning that they want more of. You know? Look at Marcelo Bielsa. He's a great example of this. He is indisputably a great coach, a truly great coach. Pochettino may one day go down as a truly great coach. But clubs and the institutions they pass through have to become great. Athletic Bilbao are a great club. Now, the question I think is maybe still open as to whether Bielsa made them great. Because if you look at you know that conversation we had with Ander Herrera and the conversation, the great podcast he did with uh, Graham Hunt, you can find it, where he describes the fact that we were just knackered in the mm. last few weeks of the season, the last few months, because we had this very dynamic style, this ideology. And maybe Pochettino will end up becoming great for his ideology his style of play as opposed to 
the end product. Yeah, well, this is the thing, the, the problem with Poch and Spurs, and I actually think it's something that is a problem with Klopp and Liverpool as well, is that if you, as a player, win stuff, then I think you feel less tired, for example. I think winning masks fatigue a lot of the time. The, the thing I fear, maybe this kind of segues nicely into Liverpool. Right. Um, the, thing, the thing I fear about Spurs, it's such an intriguing club because we've said, about, we've said it before that they're only really going to be the second major example of a, of a side in their position, of their stature, tran- moving to a, from a really historic ground to a new ground whilst trying to maintain that, that level. And I'm really on the fence about it. I know I'm sounding like I'm chickening out a little bit, but I think if they don't, if they don't win something, I don't think it's going to be catastrophic in terms of legacy or any of that stuff. But what I do fear is that how much that will take out is that if, if players don't see the, the rewards of that intensity, I think you saw it with like Klopp and Dortmund, it's a prime example. They had that, those two unbelievable seasons and then they were just done, you know, because it took that much out of them. And once they really, once they started to slide, they really, really slid. Can I say this for the first time? And this is funny on Spurs because firstly, just quickly to round up my thoughts on Pochettino, um, the job he's doing is astonishing, right? It's astonishing. To make a transition, as you say, from a stadium to another and then back again, to be essentially without a sort of, well, not without a fixed abode, to basically be like, you know, Spurs equivalent of like, they're sleeping on a, on a mate's sofa while their flat gets done up. Well, all their home games have essentially been at neutral venues this season. Right, really. absolutely. And they're still holding their own. But on Liverpool, because I think it's important to get to that, there's a piece you did before, um, or it was either an article you wrote or a piece in the podcast. I think it was either one of these, but you discussed earlier this season about how you felt it was now and ever for Liverpool. Uh, it was a piece that uh, never ended up going up. Actually, okay. Which so I was thinking, do you know what? It's funny because I, I was thinking about rewriting this because I still think it's actually as applicable now. What I would say about that piece, and obviously I think, you know, you didn't post it up, but the, lo- the thoughts of Adam will discuss them now. You said then in this sort of argument that you felt it was now or never for Liverpool in the Premier League. And the funny thing is, I first heard that. I said, like, oh no, like, but they've got this squad and it's, it's got depth. But I, looking at Liverpool the last few weeks, and they've played very good size, don't get me wrong. They've, they've struggled to grind out results. But I look at them and I think, ah, oh, like the players that they've signed haven't peaked in the ways I thought they would peak. You've got Arsenal coming back now. You've got Spurs coming back now. And I'm not saying these teams will win the league necessarily, or even United, but they will chip away and make Liverpool drop points in certain ways. It's not that Liverpool actually will, will be losing games because they're very resilient. They've only lost one so far. But they draw games they should be winning. And actually, the, the thing that is slightly concerning for them, they remind me of Liverpool under Benitez in 0809. Liverpool had they had a nil-nil draw, I think, at um I thought it was, was it Stoke City or something. They had a nil-nil draw at Anfield, and it was the kind of game they should just not have been drawing. And I was like, ah, this is and I, I thought it at the time, and I said it at the time, I said, this team, they're not ruthless. Mm. And we've talked a lot about how Klopp has sacrificed ruthlessness for match control. And we saw that manifested in some of the substitutions in the Derby. You know, players like Shakiri, for whatever reason, Shakiri is a game changer and hasn't had games. Now, we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And Klopp has said, Klopp said, you know, listen, this is not PlayStation. As you've said, you've often said that we give FIFA too much credit and we, we treat players if they should always be operating at 99% of skill and pace and whatever. And it's more complex in real life. And I'm sure Klopp had his reasons for not bringing in these key subs. Yeah, players aren't code. But yeah. the question remains open, doesn't it? There's still an open question about. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, it's, 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 it's a tricky one with Liverpool because I think as you saw in the 2014 running, there was such momentum and such emotion and 
such intensity that once it's once that starts to go it's really hard to get back and it's exhausting it's really exhausting i think that was the kind of point of the piece i might try and rewrite and put it up um because my kind of point was that at the time liverpool were going into a really tricky period and they actually managed it really well i think the only the only slip was losing to city but it did feel like that everything was kind of purring you know i use the kind of ferrari analogy like of a, course, a, yeah. a formula 1 you know a, a a historic great sporting entity that has been underachieving for a long time and is finally challenging at the top you know bar you know i'm not a massive formula 1 head but mercedes are kind of like a manchester city you know big budgets all the top like staff and all this kind of stuff and over the last few years ferrari have really started to compete which is right. very much like Liverpool. The problem is, it's kind of like once a part breaks down or it becomes less reliable, it's really hard to then make that up again and go past it, you know? So if you drop below a certain level after being level for so long, I think it takes more effort to then leapfrog that person again or that team than, than it would have done gradually making those improvements over years. So it's just, I think it's just really hard to maintain that. What they need now, Liverpool, and I say this with the greatest respect, the front three, especially with Firmino, you know, having the injuries and whatever, the front three is a a manageable problem for opposition at this at this precise moment. It's manageable. I mean, Watford got torn apart, so we have that caveat. But the midfield, really, and actually, I have to sort of say, particularly Naby Keita, has to start being more dangerous and creating more room for the front three to thrive. And it's a small systemic problem which can be solved. And look, there are nine games a season. I said this on Twitter the other day. I said, look. City haven't got an easy run in. No. And there's a lot still to happen. And United, you know, in 2011, 2012, where I think, was it eight points ahead with 60 games to go? Mm. And I remember at the time, I think, I think Arsenal had beaten, at a goal from Arteta, actually, they'd beaten um, Man City 1-0. And at that point, a lot of big writers, who I won't name because they're good friends of mine and I love them very much. I'm not going to throw them under the bus. I'm not going to know. Not going to know. They know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, they know who they are. <laughs> Listen, they know who they are. But they made some big calls saying that this is it. You know, it's it's, um, it's yeah, I mean, title. I, I mean, I'm, I'm quite new to this football industry mm. luck. You know, it's my first season, I suppose, and kind of doing this kind You're of You're like work. David O'Leary. Oh, just on a big adventure. Oh, ooh, you know, I'm just a, adventure. Ooh, got, ooh. A, you know, like, got a good young team. Um, but I think that it seems to be not particularly fashionable to just kind of say you don't really know. Wait it out, yeah. And I don't think there's any harm in that, actually, because you don't look as much of a moron as if you get it so wrong. But also, there are so many variables at play that it can be... Like, I have no idea who's going to win the Premier League. There was actually a question, it was a multi-part question, but from Mr. WP. And one of the questions was that he wrote was, who is going to win the Premier League and why? Honestly, I don't really know. Kevin Coyne is out for a month. Yeah, I don't know. And like, I, 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 my, my, my gut probably says City, but I'm not writing Liverpool off. The challenge is for Liverpool. This has now turned into a shootout, and that's the one thing they did not want it to turn into. Yeah, and also because- they've, they've they've stopped scoring goals against sides that you would back them to score goals against. Like you would have in in the winter or in in the autumn, you would have backed them to score against Bayern. You would have backed them to score against Manchester United. You would have backed them, especially Manchester United that had three substitutions in the first half due to injury. How many times have we talked about Everton this season? The catfish. The, like it's, but it's is it. 
Are they the biggest catfish in res? Are you saying Liverpool the catfish? <laughs> are you saying no? no I'm just it's, the catfish. This derby. is astonishing. This is. Ast- I've just said so early just in the said year that like nuance is really important, and then I've just thrown out an absolute nuclear take, <laughs> suggesting Liverpool the catfish. Oh my god! No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. No, do you know what it is? No, no, no. Actually, joking aside, because look, let's just get the goal difference up because Liverpool have a goal difference of plus 49, which is outstanding, obviously. City have one of plus 56. And that's just, that's awful. Like, because that, you know, they always say the goal difference is an extra point. Now, City could drop points. They've got difficult fixtures and they've won the last two games 1-0 in quite sort of <clears throat> trying circumstances. High pressure, not many goals. But they have to like their chances at this point. I still think they will drop points, City. I don't doubt that at all. And I, I back Liverpool start of the season, so I'll keep backing them because I don't want to be fickle. I don't want to be fickle. And I, I still think they have the chops to win it. And I actually, at some level, I still think they will. Oh, they definitely have the chops. That's the thing. Like this is yeah. the, the one thing I really, really hate at the moment about this kind of narrative is that it's like if Liverpool don't win it, they've choked or any of this nonsense. I just don't think that is a valid point at all like and it's the same with Spurs people use it towards Spurs all the time about you know Spurs being Spursy or Spurs are going to choke and all this kind of stuff and it's <sighs> I don't think that's healthy I don't think it, maybe it's a kind of new school tribalism thing because there mm. is there's, the tribalism has taken a very different turn over the last like 10 years with social media and, and culture stuff. war it's become a culture war if you haven't won the league for a long time as Liverpool haven't and United saw this too they had to go the long way round super hard you have to go the long way round it's yeah. just what United did against um you know, they had the, the big title race with mm. Villa, the big run-in, they had to go up against Blackburn, you know, and they had the full starts, West Ham in 94-95. If you've not won in a while, it just, it takes a while to get back into the habit. Yeah, I mean, and, and Liverpool have, have, have kind of rode the disappointment of, um, you know, the, the losing in the finals that they've played under Klopp yeah. really well. Really well. I do, I just wonder if maybe the league, getting that close to the league and then is maybe just a little bit, too much for I'm going to get absolutely skewered for saying this as a United fan but best luck Liverpool because you play very well yeah, and if best, you win you deserve it may the best team win but yeah like we say we don't know if yeah. they're done but I segue someone I know who is done I think that might be Fulham <sighs> stick a fork in him poor Fulham listen a club very close to my heart I must add some uh, you know my granddad was a Fulham fan so you know I do have a little bit of a soft spot for them but I think should we, we don't really need to talk too much about this game you'd expect Chelsea to win they yeah. did win um, Fulham could have probably should have maybe got an equaliser near the end it's a result that doesn't really, really hurt anybody yeah. that much no, Ranier is obviously you know made Do you actually the, the people that probably does hurt the most is Arsenal actually I think that they would have a point a, if Fulham had got a point there that would have been very very handy for Arsenal this weekend not unexpected pain though no not yeah, at all yeah. like you you know you would have kind of chalked that up as probably a, a, a Chelsea win before should we take a quick break and then speak to James let's do it We go now to the wonderful James Horncastle. James, great to have you back to discuss the Lazio-Roma derby, but also wider occurrences, uh, happenings around Serie A. James, welcome back. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be with you. Let's get straight into it, James. Lazio-Roma. What happened there? (laughs) What happened there? Well, I mean, something that was, I think, quite unexpected um, in that uh, Roma were unbeaten in eight games um, going into the uh, Debbie della Capitale and uh, they looked like the team that was going to push on and, and make the Champions League places and it was kind of imperative that they did um, because uh, the night before 
uh, Inter, who've been quite comfortable um, in third place uh, for the for the well, last few months, have really started to to wobble and had lost in Sardinia to Cagliari. So this was a huge opportunity uh, for Roma. And instead, you could be given for thinking that uh, they didn't play a game at all. They didn't turn up because Lazio, whose form completely contrasted uh, with uh, with Roma's, they'd recently gone out of the Europa League, um, losing both games to Sevilla. Um, they were held nil-nil by Milan in the cup semi-final in midweek and had all these injuries, um, players only just coming back. Um, yeah, they completely outplayed Roma. And, uh, and thoroughly deserved uh, what, what, what is a massive win because I think if you look at um, the annals of, uh, of this particular rivalry, Lazio have, uh, have only ever won it 3 0 uh, once before, and that was in December 2006. And, uh, and yeah, they were celebrating afterwards. They brought out their uh, their eagle, um, oh my which, goodness. Um, who uh, who is not allowed to fly um, uh, before derby games, just in just in case she becomes a target uh, for uh, for Roma fans who uh, who famously sing um, "Where's the pigeon." Where's the pigeon? Oh my well, goodness! The, uh, <laughs> the, the the eagle was out and allowed to uh, to celebrate with the uh, with the Laziali at the end of the game. So, yeah, I mean, in, in many respects, it was it was a bit of a tactical masterclass from uh, from Simone Inzaghi. I saw the scoreline and I was I was shocked by. You know, I remember thinking Lazio don't normally turn over Roma. Roma. If there's a drubbing in a derby, it's normally Roma handing it out. Yeah. You, you're absolutely right. I mean. Uh, Lazio's recent record in this in this derby has not been good. Um, you know, you can say that you know both of these sides effectively play at home, but um, there is a difference when one of them is the the nominal home side, and and Lazio actually hadn't won um, as the hosts um, since I think 2012. Okay. Um, oh. You know, which you know when you've got 14,000. Um, "Quote unquote away fans in 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 the uh, in the stadium, and the rest are all, in this case, Laziali. Um, yeah, that has been a, a major kind of uh, cause of disappointment uh, for Lazio fans. But what I would say again, and and their parsimonious and often criticised owner, um, the dream thief, as Lazio fans often call him, um, <laughs> Claudio Lotito. Yeah, he's right when he he kind of points out that." You know, in, in his time as the owner, and he rescued the club just as their coffin was being put into the ground, as he likes to put it. <laughs> they've won things. Um, they've won the cup twice. Um, they've reached the final, I think, another couple of times. Um, and, and, and one of those cup wins came with a with a victory in the final against Roma. And uh, and that is a major sore point uh, for for the Gialarossi. It's a major sore point for. Uh, for Roma's owners, the Americans, and you know, Lazio, Lazio fans love nothing more to, than to lord this over them. Yeah, it was just—it was really surprising to see how how Roma um, were just so passive, uh, sloppy, really, and passive. Yeah, no, yeah. you're absolutely right. They um, they couldn't get near Lazio, um, and and when they did have the ball, um, they gave it away really cheaply. Um, and you know, I think. It's it's really interesting uh, whenever there is a derby to watch the performances of the Romans on the pitch, right. um, those who feel it most. And Daniel De Rossi and Alessandro Florenzi, um, in in Roma's case, they uh, they sometimes give their best in this in this fixture. They sometimes um, 
set the tone. Uh, don't give their best. Yeah. <laughs> I put it like that. And uh, De Rossi gave the ball away um, too often. Uh, and Florenzi, a lot of um, Lazio's kind of best work and their their, their main threat um, came down his side, which, you know, this is a real frustration for Roma fans, is that Florenzi, who is such a versatile player, he's been at his best for, for, for his club when he's played as a winger or in midfield, and he's basically had to do a job as a fullback for the last few years whilst they you know, sign a fullback who they think is going to solve the problems and ultimately doesn't solve those problems. But, I mean, I, uh, I've i often been a, a big um, defendant uh, of uh, another one of Roma's players, which is Fazio, who I think this happens quite a lot, and you guys will be familiar with this, where if a player goes to, let's say, the Premier League and has yeah. a bad six months or a bad year you know that is like a you know it's like a, a stigmatizing uh, experience um from which you know a lot of premier league twitter let's say uh will never forgive them for like Matarazzi. You know, Matarazzi was like that yeah exactly in, in terms of you know this guy's was bad once that means he's always bad and 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 the reality is that Fazio in his first 18 months at Roma was very good, uh, very, very good. And a big part of them uh, making that run to the Champions League semi-final last year. Um, but this year, he he's definitely been Spurs Fazio um, and, um, and has been culpable for a lot of just really schoolboy mistakes. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that really disgruntled uh, Eusebio Di Francesco, the the Roma manager in this game, was that they essentially conceded two goals from throw-ins. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, that is just unacceptable James, at any level. What gets me with this is, you know, if, maybe it's a bit too much of a leap because derbies have a unique um, atmosphere. But this kind of disintegration for Roma is happening at precisely the worst time for them. And, I mean, where does this sit in the context of their season? Zooming out slightly um, from this performance, is it the pressure of chasing Juventus taking its toll? And what, what's happened to them this year, What in the, these last couple of months specifically? Well, look, expectations were raised on the back of last season. Um, you know, when you, you reach a Champions League semi-final, which I think is the most significant result uh, in recent memory uh, for Roma, um, the most significant after them last winning the league title in, in 2001 right. and so there was this there was this hope um, and there's always this hope before every season uh, with Roma fans that they would at the very least contend for the title um, and and uh, yeah, while there is realism that because of the amount of money that Juventus made the fact they were signing Cristiano Ronaldo um, it was always going to be pretty improbable but they still expected more than this and I think uh, it's just been the inconsistency and the the unpredictability uh, in in this Roma team, where they have occasionally played very well, um, often again uh, as with last year in the Champions League, but um, they have uh, suffered some some really I, I wouldn't even call it uh, disappointing defeats. It's more um, that in games that they're expected to win, where they've been in front. They they have inexplicably collapsed uh, and, and and thrown away two points, which you know as we see now, uh, where um, Milan have overtaken into 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 third place, but there are all these other teams kind of queuing up behind Roma, Atalanta, um, and, and Torino, uh, for example. Lazio now have a game in hand on them, and I think would go level on points with them if they were to win that. Um, 
Yeah, it just feels like they've 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 wasted a lot of very good opportunities. Right. It's it's a, it's a it's a mix of things which um, has been building for some time. Yeah. Um, and and means that Wednesday's game against Porto is is not only an in and out for the team as as regards the Champions League, but an in and out for the manager. You see a bit of Francesco as well, which again. Um, uh, tells you a lot about modern football and that this is a guy who who has got Roma to the Champions League semi-final, uh, which is, you know, an outstanding achievement. Right. And here we are, not even a year later, and he is fighting for his job and, and you know, really has been since since November. And I think I think um it's quite interesting because as I mentioned, you know, they were eight games unbeaten going into the derby and they I think had the joint best record in in the league since the start of December. So it looked like things were really beginning to come good. And then all of a sudden, the three nil defeat in this in this fixture, and you know, going into this this game against Porto, it's it's now become you know very delicate, very brittle. And um, speaking of Champions League stuff, James, um, Napoli Juve was another big game from the weekend. Some very questionable refereeing decisions seemed to pepper the whole game. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I think whenever you mention Juventus and refereeing decisions, there, there is the, there, there is the, um, <laughs> the, the well, no, there, there is this attitude that oh, they must have been all, all in favour of Juventus. Um, but no, no. Um, I would say uh, in this, it was it was quite even in yeah. that. Um, yeah, Napoli had their their goalkeeper sent off very early. Uh, there's a big debate as to whether any contact was made between Alex Meretz, the goalkeeper, and Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, it's one of those things where even if you watch it back and you see the the images, it's it, it's it's not entirely conclusive either way. The images don't really help you um, make a decision, I don't think. Mm. Um, and and then there's you know the, the the handball towards the end of the game where Alexandro the Juventus fullback is seen to to handle the ball and, and wasn't maybe wasn't in complete control of what he was doing. I, I know, but. Handball, as we've seen, you know, throughout, um, even in the Champions League this year, when it comes to video assistant referees, it's a major bone of contention as to what is deliberate handball and what is not, and um, you know when when the hand is in an unnatural position and when it's not. And I think IFAB um, um, uh, um, are ruling at the moment that any handball, whether it's deliberate or not, will be blown as a penalty um, from That's now wild. on, just to take away any any doubt um, and any sort of debate over this matter. Which you know, if I'm a defender in my penalty area I'm, I'm thinking that's that's pretty hard yeah, <laughs> pretty so, harsh I mean I can't sorry to cut in but I can't believe that that got given I could not believe yeah. that got given I mean we were talking about the North London derby earlier and the decisions in that that seemed to be very similar they, they didn't favour any one team it was just that the referee was pretty crap for both and mm. I actually I actually couldn't believe that the the Ronaldo one was given I didn't think it was a foul in real time I definitely didn't think it was a foul in slow-mo and I definitely didn't think it was a sending off because I thought they changed the rule on that as well where it was because of this kind of triple punishment thing yeah I suppose that I suppose in in this in this sense um it it wasn't it wasn't a penalty so the 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 the, the, um it it was outside the box yeah true um uh, there would, there wouldn't. I mean, there wouldn't have been a triple punishment uh, anywhere. But I think it, because triple punishment is red card, lose a player, uh, have a penalty given against you, and go behind and, yeah. uh, and lose him for another game. I think in this because it happens outside the area. Um, yeah, that's why the referee went with that 
with that decision. I think the only thing that that kind of um, you can maybe understand why the referee went for that decision is because as Ronaldo moves the ball away, that is when the goalkeeper's foot is raised mm. and his studs are up. Um, and but it's in slow mo. That's, that's, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was watching on Italian TV and Capello, Fabio Capello was on as a pundit, and he was like, you know, that is that is a red card. You know, you 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 can't have your your you can't raise your foot as the as the player is is trying to get around you. You can't have your studs up, regardless of contact. Regardless um, of contact. Uh, oh yeah. my goodness! <laughs> when, hey, this isn't the first time I disagree with Fabio Capello. <laughs> um, but actually, on the triple threat thing or triple punishment, triple threat. What we're talking triple about? Triple threat. It's too much basketball. Too much NBA. Um, <laughs> Pjanic took the free kick, so it's basically a triple punishment anyway. You know, because yeah, yeah. he's so I mean, good at free it. kicks are like penalties for Pjanic. Exactly. Um, so and, good. Uh, it's, it's actually that's a really good uh, point to raise about this game is that. Um, this was the first free kick that Juventus have scored all season, and uh, and this has been a regular kind of uh, question that has been put to Allegri, <laughs> the coach, in uh, in press conferences because yeah, Ronaldo has been taking pretty much all of the penalties, uh, all of the free kicks, and um, yeah, he's scored one or two spectacular ones over the course of his career, but he's nowhere near as good as a Miralem Pjanic and b Paolo Dybala. You could even throw in Federico Bernardeschi. In And I I think um, rank has been pulled a little bit here because particularly in the Champions League where the margins are so fine and uh, a game might be decided by a set piece, um, you have to have Pjanic standing over the free kick. Just before I go, James, um, I mean, it's, it's been great to have your overview of Roma and to a wider extent Serie A. But just in terms of Serie A as a league, in terms of a health check, what, what sort of what sort of health is it in at the moment? Well, I think Italian football in general um, is, I think, still in need of, of major reform, and you only have to see some of the kind of horror stories that go on below the surface. The number of clubs, for example, that went bust in the summer, um, yeah, some some big big names right. in uh, to use sort of a borrow a phrase from American sports, big markets yeah. in, in like Bari, for example, you know, sort of all of a sudden going from the playoffs to going bust and having to start again in the fourth division. Yeah, you might have been aware that a couple of weeks ago um, there was a, a story that kind of went viral on social media about Pro Piacenza, mm-hmm. um, who right, was this, this team the in, the, yeah. in the third flight who ended up only being able to field eight players, all of whom were teenagers and, you know, an 18 year old had to be player manager. Um, and they were wrapped up the, uh, they, w- they went to the war the following day. Um, all these things are never far from the surface, even in, even in Serie A. Um, you know, you, you, you only have to think about Palmer four years ago, but in terms of the competitive balance of the league last year, Serie A had, I think the most competitive and most compelling title race um, we've seen in Europe for for some time. Um, I mean, the Premier League is is going some way to, to to matching that this season. But it was it was brilliant not only for the fact that Juventus and Napoli were going at it right until the end of the season, and it looked like Juventus were really going to lose it when they lost at home to Napoli in I think was it late April. But you also had um, the, the final Champions League place going down to the final day, final Europa League place going down to the final day. You had the final uh, spot um, in the relegation go- zone going down to the final day. You know, all of those things made it um, made it great viewing. Um, but you know, this year when you look at you know sixteen points at the top um, between Juventus and, and the rest. 
um, it's, you know, it, it does uh, make it very easy to make that kind of generalization that, you know, the, um, uh, and even the Bundesliga this year, you'll still have people going, oh, well, it's so easy for buying and, and blah, right. blah, blah. But I would say the last few years, particularly in the time when the Milan clubs were either going through one bad owner to get to a good one, you've seen Roma and Napoli sort of um, take their place and be consistent. Um, uh, playing Champions League football, and yeah, they tend to alternate in terms of like who's going to challenge Juventus. Um, and then there's a really good upper class coming through. Um, you know, Atalanta, for example, um, which is wild yeah. to think of from just a couple of years ago. It's crazy that they're now. Yeah, America. I mean, yeah, Atalanta, um, a little bit like Udinese on the Guidolin with Toto Di Natale up front. You know, they're they're, they're a team that that. Uh, regularly threatens to be in, in the top four um, and can you can beat anyone on their day. You know they put Juventus out of the cup by beating them three nil um, earlier in the season. Um, yeah, Lazio, Torino, um, uh, Sampdoria, and Fiorentina—they all play good football and, and, and have really interesting young teams. Um, uh, and then, I mean, you look at the national team. You know, obviously, we've, we're, we're coming out of 2018 uh, where they failed to make the um, uh, the World Cup for the first time since 1958. Um, they actually have a. I think what was really galling about uh, not qualifying is that um, the squad that was available to Mancini's predecessor, Jean Piero Ventura, um, was actually uh, better than the one that Conte had at the Euros when. Italy were probably the best team at that Euros. Yeah. Um, certainly put put in the two best performances. Um, and there's a really bright generation coming through now um, that are um, sort of getting a lot of game time in in the league. Um, you know, I mean, we'll see it on Wednesday night if if Nicolo Zaniola plays. Zaniola's become you know very much kind of the, the poster boy of this of this new era. But you can you can list um, yeah the number of players. Donnarumma, for example, who only just turned twenty, who's having having a great season yeah. um, at, at Milan. They've they've got you know we're not maybe we're maybe not talking Spain level talent because Spain level talent is just absurd in terms yeah. of um, uh, what they've produced uh, over the last few years. I, I, but I think I generally think the only thing that Italy are missing at the moment is is um, you know a, a twenty twenty five goal a season young striker mm. um, and you know probably the, the most obvious thing that a, a lot of people look to but maybe isn't looked upon in Italy as much is is a lack of that classic ten you know the 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 badger the the the, the totti the 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 player who can play as a as a ten or a second striker like Del Piero that's you know that kind of that kind of a talent um, but the rest is there and it looks it looks actually really it looks really promising well Ryan I think we've got our clickbait then from James the future's bright the future's blue <laughs> we need some news lines from this James so it's we need, be yeah, Italy yeah. winning the World Cup Ronaldo can't line. take free kicks fantastic um, that's the news line James most importantly um, thank you so much for superb unparalleled analysis listeners you can find James Horncastle at at James Horncastle I'm not sure if you can see clearly in his Twitter avatar but he has the most superb head of hair ever possessed by a journalist working in sport or anywhere else for that matter um, of which I'm deeply envious I will take that <laughs> thank you so much James absolute star cheers mate cool Okay, back from the break and what we were originally going to dedicate this entire podcast to was Mario Balotelli's goal celebration over the weekend. 
That's wild. So Balotelli scores against St Etienne. In the 12th minute, I should add, this was. It's a fantastic sort of hooked volley, like waist-high volley from a corner. It's over half volley. Yeah. And then he runs over, grabs um, someone's smartphone, and then... I think that was his. Is it his smartphone? I think so, this guy. Because the guy seemed to know it was coming. There are so many things right and wrong about right. that. I, I, this could, you could write a thesis on this. You could, it's a microcosm of his yeah. entire career. Because also, it's worth pointing out that that was only his fourth goal of the season in the league. He did it for the gram. Games. He literally did it for the gram. But the thing is, how ma- I want to know how many times has someone held his phone for him? Thank you. And before. this is my issue with the celebration. It's the fact that the cart is before the horse. This is why this is such a profound thing, because it's like... Some, there was a guy, um, AJL White, uh, at AJL White on Twitter, Alan White, said, I still can't decide whether this is a good celebration or not. And the reason why I don't think it is a good celebration is because it misses too many beats. You're watching it and he runs over to the crowd and he's like taking the phone and you're like, okay, go take the selfie and be done. But then you see him like take the photo of his mates and upload it. I'm like, if you're thinking about other stuff, like way before getting into the goal, it's like the priorities are wrong. Uh, I don't know. That's how I feel about it. That's how I feel about it. You know, I mean, how many times have we seen planned goal celebrations? Can you imagine if it wasn't uploading or he didn't have signal? That would have been really frustrating. Right, exactly. I mean, man, it's not uploading. Don't get me wrong. It's like, it's fun and it's iconic. And we love Balotelli. Mario Balotelli on his day is as devastating a striker as world football has seen. And Balotelli always reminds me of the kid that is way smarter than everyone else. So it doesn't have to revise that hard. Still makes loads of money, still marries someone lovely, still has nice kids in the country, but like, dude, like, you could have been even more. And like, don't get me wrong, I love seeing, part of me is like, I love seeing people having fun in football because it reminds us that it is a game. You know, and you see people talking about how football is a game where there's so much pressure and, on, on players and they're not just enjoying themselves and social media is so brutal. And I kind of love the fact that he's a bit of a pirate and he's taken social media to make this playful thing, but you're also like, dude, like... I, I I I have to you know confess I'm, I'm a I'm a Balotelli fan. Yeah, we, so am I. So am I. But I'm also yeah. like, dude. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's. I mean, it was a massive game that game. I think we should put it into context. You know, because Marseille started the day below Saint Etienne. Mm. You know, moved into fourth by winning that game, and it was in the twelfth minute of the game. So, and I know it's you know a lot of what ifs here, but say he does that celebration, it goes up, and then Saint Etienne win two one. Do you know what as well, actually? You've got to kind of ad- ad- admire the absolute, like how self-assured he is that he's just like, oh, yeah, but this I listen, is, this that is, is the time. That, listen, this is uh, the time. To be clear on this podcast, like I don't for a second have any disrespect for like his confidence level. I, I rate all of that. No, no, no. I wasn't saying Yeah, yeah did, no, no, no. But... I rate all of that. I think it's amazing. I, I love Balotelli. And at the same time, I'm like, dude, there's just, there's times when you just go, you're just too extra. He does the most. You know what I mean? He does. The, we've all got a friend that does the most. And Balotelli... He just does the most. I have a Balotelli story. Do you want to hear it? Go for it. So um, a few years ago when I was living in Manchester, me and some friends were <laughs> we were going bowling one night and uh, we went to the Trapper Centre's bowling alley. So we stopped off for some food before we went to TGI Fridays. This is like so many marks against me here. Bowling on a Friday in the wow, Trapper Centre. Wow, up. My goodness. Yeah, Glory TGI years. Fridays. You know, <laughs> wow. Um, to be fair, it was uh, there was a phase of these boneless chicken wings in TGI Fridays that are colossal. I'm not hating TGI, listen. Just um, out of respect. You know. And just randomly, who walks past us who had been in TGI Fridays in the Trapper Centre? Mario. Legend. Look, call me completely naive and ridiculous. But you know what I would love to see happen? Can I just say it? Throw it out there, hot take. I'm going to agree with you. I can feel it. Balotelli 
to Dortmund under Lucien Favre and just balls out of his mind. I would love nothing more than Balotelli to go to Dortmund and just rip things up. Wow, that, I, I wasn't expecting that. Because but, uh, that, can you imagine that? Like Balotelli leading the Dortmund front line. I think he's played for Lucien Favre as well. I think uh, Favre was managed at Nice. And just that, just to put him in a place where he feels absolutely loved and appreciated. All his social media needs are completely indulged because Dortmund loved that. He'd be a social media dream for Dortmund. They're great at that. And just put him at the centre of a young and brilliant team and have him play out of his mind. That's a big call. Balotelli to Dortmund, you heard it here first. Let's start the campaign oh, now. Wow. Instead of Sancho Corner, it's Balotelli Corner. Oh, uh, well, yeah, it was a bit of a sad Sancho Corner this week. He had the pre-assist for Alcácer's goal, but um, yeah, um, Augsburg doing their Bavarian rivals a favour by yeah. beating beating Dortmund. Oh, and uh, I think Bayern at a level now, right? Yeah. Uh-oh. I, I still want, listen, Dortmund, like Liverpool, I still tip for the title, partly because I've started so I'll finish but I'm nervous for them. Yeah, I really hope they do win it, personally. I know that's, we shouldn't show bias on this show. but yeah. um, Skipping around slightly, not that I'm a man to show bias, but Avar Morata scored twice in three minutes for oh, yeah. Madrid. I'm he very happy having for him. A, he's having a lovely time. I'm very happy for him because he seems like a very nice man. I said this on Twitter before, but I love that he's bringing out, uh, Simeone is bringing the best out of Morata, who has, he's been great in an all-round sense, not just the goals, but it's been the hold-up play, leading the line. So I'm very happy for him kind of leads into the point that James made about Premier League players who are actually really good but maybe don't tear it up in the Premier League. I'm just, look, and it's the same with Balotelli, I just love seeing players of immense talent achieve their potential. And mm-hmm. I think that actually, fun enough, Balotelli and Murata have a parallel in that they, they may both reach their peak later in their careers and they're like, you know, for, for various reasons, they haven't achieved what they should have done. And what they've done is already considerable, don't get me wrong. But for their talent level, they are like generational great talent level. Mm. And I'd be so excited to see them both growing old very gracefully as sort of elder statesmen in their football teams and their squads and really leading their teams to big things. Yeah, definitely. We're going but, to talk Classico. Yeah, Classico. Yeah, let's get into that very quickly. So isn't it wild how Rackett just had to sweat for that recognition? <sighs> but those. But can I say something can I, without sounding like a, a football snide? Go for it. Those you know, who've always known. I've said this, I said it on Twitter yesterday. He is the heir to Sadov. He is... The heir to Clarence Sadov. Um, he is, I think we, was it Lee Roden posted the thing yes, uh, over the weekend about it? Yeah. And that Lee Roden, you and Colin, you and Colin Miller were, yeah. were responding. Yeah. I think I responded to a thing, to it just saying, the thing about players like Rakitic is that a lot of what he does is just actually fundamentally quite boring to watch because, and that's not a slight on him, that's because it's the right thing to do at the time. So that is so much harder to do than attempt something that you know the probability of is going to be pretty low and you know, it getting cut out or something like that. Rakitic is even more underrated as a player for Barcelona than Luis Enrique was as a manager for Barcelona. Yeah. And that's awful. That is an awful reflection on a certain segment of that fan base that just fails or refuses to see what he brings to the team. And I said this, someone said, oh, you know, like he's not that good. And someone else commented to me that the thing about Rakitic is we love him. We'd love him if he wasn't ours, but now that he's ours, we have an issue with him. And I was like, what is that psychological desire or need the to have someone to- always greener, man. But the weird thing as well is that, like I said, what, does Rakic have to be Dutch or something? Like, not being funny, if Rakic had a Dutch, well, no, Ivan Van, whatever, oh my goodness, all of a sudden, oh my goodness, oh, we see it. <laughs> he's literally a total footballer. He plays the four, he plays the six, he plays the eight, he plays the ten. Yeah, he's he is literally a total footballer. Um, he does everything you'd want. He's all your footballing needs. He's as underrated as Seydorf was. And he also comes across like a really top dude as well. Um, I just don't get it. I tweeted over the after the... Classico or during the Classico that um, 
that Barca midfield of Arthur, Rakitic and Diong is going to be very tasty next season. It's going to be musical. And I do think Busquets is the one that's going to lose out. I think he will lose out. And he's actually had a difficult, you know, whisper it lightly, he's had a difficult few months. Um, and actually, even maybe a year, could I say a year and a half, he's not been yeah, full but, Busquets. Yeah, but he's got a lot of miles on the clock. He's played of course, a lot of football, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, Rakitic, lovely finish. Beautiful, beautiful. Day. Reminiscent of Kenny Dalglish in the European Cup final against Bruges. Oh, man, you really, you're really trying to please Liverpool fans this uh no, I'm just these are the points of reference. Listen, that we can King give Kenny. Yin and Yang. Yeah. While we're on the subject of Liverpool, if a certain Liverpool great has anything to say about Balotelli's celebration being excessive, we can direct Mr. Graham Sunis to the final of the Turkish Cup, where he went and planted <laughs> his flag, flag in the, the centre circle. Oh my God, I'm just waiting for the day someone actually references Graham Sunis's own playing career against him when he says that the modern player actually, is extravagant. This has kind of reminded me of something that I wanted to talk about today, and it was like. The post Allardyce, Alan Brazil nonsense. Oh my God, on Sam Allardyce talking about how Trump has done so much for America. Yeah, and also how the modern players are soft, are soft. or it's because oh of soft goodness. parenting and they don't have, they don't have the strong mentality that players of his, his words, like his generation. And he was, I think he was referring to him and Alan Brazil. And I kind of wanted to raise this point. I'm glad, because, you, I'm, I'm glad you've taken it there. Because frankly, I think it's a load of crap. Like I, think that actually it's the complete opposite. I think you've seen with Allardyce and Sooness that when they get pulled up on stuff about something they've said, you know, Redknapp, prime example, Harry Redknapp, when he had, he called in to answer back to something Gary Neville said about Spurs, right. which he wasn't even directly at Harry Redknapp. I think that actually the thing they really struggled to take is criticism. And when they played football, there would be maybe one televised game on the weekend, a match of the day and maybe a small piece in the newspaper the following day. And then that was it until they played the following week. They, he said players can't take criticism, right? It's players project, have to take yeah. criticism and coverage and analysis 24 hours a day, seven days a week from everyone in the entire world. Right. Like if you are on the most smallest remote island in the middle of, this, in the, middle of the ocean, you can still, within a second say something that potentially a young footballer is going to read and slag them off. Can you imagine what they would be like if that, or if Allardyce was like, if that kind of stuff happened to them back in their day? Couldn't handle it. So I think it's completely opposite. And I know this isn't exactly like, you know, but it's like... No, I'm glad you've said it because it has it just, to be. It yeah. winds me up this argument so much because it's just completely untrue. And it actually, there's more scrutiny and awareness and coverage and whatever you want to call it, criticism of players from a far earlier age, from a wider audience now, they have to be more mentally strong than they've ever had to be before. And you see that in all sports. Allardyce was also praising in that segment, he was praising Donald Trump, saying, oh my God, <laughs> the amount he's done for the American economy, even though Obama put structural things in place that made the economy boom anyway, but whatever. Like, for, for Allardyce to go on TV and praise Trump like that, and to be completely disregard what he's done on race and civil rights, and to be like, Trump's done so much for America. So, to have that kind of personality in charge of England's multicultural England team, this, this group of players we all really like from a variety of backgrounds, to have a manager who is that oblivious or indifferent at best, at, at the very best, to Trump's views on race in charge of those young players would have been a dereliction of duty. And I'm so glad, actually, he's not in charge. I'm so glad we have Southgate there. Yeah. Right? Um, should we have a few questions? Yeah, we're running got, really we've long. Couple, yeah, we've only got a couple of questions. Um, yeah, a couple of the other questions. Okay, so let's have a look. Okay, the rest of the questions from Mr. WP. So the first one we covered earlier, who's going to win the Premier League and why? I found this one interesting. 
Does anyone know the offside rule anymore? This was brilliant. Did you see the clarification on the Harry Kane offside on the weekend? No. So basically, long story short, is Sam Wallace tweeted something about it saying that he sought expert opinion on the Kane offside. And this is from the FA's rules. So a player in an offside position is moving towards the ball with the intention of playing the ball and is fouled before playing or attempting to play the ball or challenging an opponent for the ball. The foul is penalised as it occurred before the offside offence. So even if he was stood in an offside position. (laughs) The next paragraph underneath that. An offence is committed against a player in an offside position who is already playing or attempting to play the ball or challenging an opponent for the ball. The offside offence is penalised as it has occurred before the foul challenge. You're the only way to stop being offside. Listen to that clause reminds me of doing like my law finals at uni. I mean, untangling that logic. I, I, I can't even, we, we could take half an hour deciphering that. The only way to avoid being offside is to run with the ball from your own half. That is the only way to avoid it. <laughs> okay, one more question because we're running super long. But um, sure. yeah, please keep your questions coming. We do appreciate them. Um, AJ Cortese picks for the top four. Oh, gosh. My short one to finish off. Oh, gosh, it's cruel. Okay. Well, I mean, mm, Actually, Liverpool, no, Liverpool, Man City, nailed on. They're the top two, I think, in that order. Liverpool will win the league. Manchester City will be second. I think Spurs will come third. And I think, actually, Manchester United will end up fourth. I actually agree with you. The homer in me wants to go Arsenal fourth, but there's something... Whenever I think Arsenal fourth, there's, you know, there's something in my head that just flags up like a massive red light. It sh- Arsenal should be fourth. They should end up fourth. I, I, think, I think this is what we... I mean, we said this earlier. The, the, the game at the weekend against Manchester United is massive. Yeah. I think if Arsenal do win that, I would probably change my opinion next week and put Arsenal fourth. Yeah. As it stands at the moment... Power rankings. Assuming, power rankings, I'm assuming, yes. you know, it's Man United playing Arsenal at the Emirates... How much should we have a bet on whether Man United score a counter-attacking goal to make it 3-0 or 3-1 when Arsenal are chasing the game in the 75th minute? Is Lingard back? Wherever Lingard is, he'll be dancing. I can tell you that for sure. Well, I mean, there's no Sanchez. There's no Lingard. Um, They've got a few big injuries. But I mean, we we haven't even really mentioned Man United, but quickly, they were brilliant on the weekend. And actually, that was a really, really good game, that Manchester United-Southampton game. Yeah, we've talked about United plenty on this podcast. So. Oh, it makes you uncomfortable. No, it doesn't. I just don't want to, you know, it's um, if you talk about United too much, it kind of blocks out all heat and light. So yeah, they what they did was great. And it's great to see Solskjaer surging and it's great to see fans happy again. That's just nice. It's just nice to have happy fans and a late goal at Old Trafford. Oh, and on that lovely note, before we go, please, if you're listening on iTunes, give us a rating and a review, preferably five stars. It does help the podcast. The ratings are incredibly helpful. They really do. They really help us kind of move up the rankings as well. And as we're still very very small time at the moment, you know, we really appreciate it. And um, next, Rabona selects is Thursday. Yeah. I'm not sure who it's going to be yet. We've got a load lined up, so we're going to have a look. But um, check the last one. It was Virgil van Dijk. And the Pointer Sisters. Doing the Lord's work. Just a cool tune for a cool guy. Absolutely. A fantastic, a fantastic player. And um, yeah, thank you so much for listening, audience. You're an absolute, you're absolute um, pleasure to have you with us. And we are on social media channels, at Mag, Facebook, Instagram, all the rest. See you soon. Thank you. 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.